This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, this is BJ. You're listening to Rock and Or Roll, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. And I wanted to record a short intro for this re-release of this classic episode of Rock and or Roll. So this was actually the 34th episode I released. It came out in March of 2014. So I had been doing the podcast for less than a year. And I remember that this interview with Marty Friedman was scheduled months in advance. And I believe it happened in January of 2014. And Marty was very gracious to give me any of his time at all because I had just started podcasting, didn't have any kind of a internet presence or anything like that. I think you can hear my, I don't know, my lack of confidence or just my lack of experience in interviewing anyone. It's a, it's a pretty weird thing to, to do when you've never done it before, to just start doing something like this, to just decide that I'm going to interview Marty Friedman but I think this is a great episode. I, I've always, this has always been one of my favorite episodes. Uh, I love the stories he tells. Yeah, I just wanted to let you know that this is a very early episode. Another thing you'll notice is there's reverb on this. Um, when I first started doing the podcast and I was using GarageBand, the old version of GarageBand, there was a podcast-specific, I don't know what you would call it, feature. There was a podcast feature as a part of GarageBand back then. And when you opened up a new file in the podcast feature, they already had these tracks already there for you to use. And I didn't realize until I had been doing the podcast for maybe a year or something, I couldn't figure out why some of my episodes had this reverb and some of them didn't. And then I eventually figured out that those pre-loaded tracks on GarageBand in the podcast feature the male vocal or whatever and female vocal that it just when you opened up a new podcast file it would just have those tracks there and I was just using them because they were there and it turned out they had reverb on them and then I realized why some of my early episodes had this stupid reverb effect on there so you'll hear that (laughs) reverb kind of echo effect on our voices when we're talking here but otherwise like I said this is one of my favorite episodes I ever did one of my favorite interviews And I thought this would be a great episode to get back in the feed and for people to hear it again. Because like I said, this came out in March 2014, so a long time ago. Wait a minute, this sounds like rock and or roll.
Hello, welcome to Rock and or Roll. I'm your reluctant host, BJ. My special guest on today's episode is Marty Friedman, guitar virtuoso Marty Friedman. If you know who Marty is, it's probably because of the 10 years he spent in Megadeth. He made five records with the band. But that's unfortunate, if that's the only reason you know of Marty Friedman, because Marty made some great heavy metal music before he joined Megadeth. He was in a very early band, as far as heavy metal goes, a band called Deuce, in Washington, D.C., in the late 70s, early 80s. Then he moved to Hawaii, and he had a couple of bands, Vixen and Aloha, before he formed his classic band, Hawaii. And that band, Hawaii, is one of my favorite heavy metal bands of the 80s, and they were responsible for one of my very favorite heavy metal releases of the 80s, an EP called Loud, Wild, and Heavy, which featured maybe my favorite heavy metal song of all time, a great song called Escape the Night. So I contacted Marty and asked him if he would like to come on the show and tell the Deuce Vixen Hawaii story. And he said yes, he's a very nice guy, and it was a great conversation we had, so I hope you enjoy it. This is the talk I had with Marty Friedman. I'm guessing Deuce was probably your fa- your first band, right? That's right. You were still a teenager, right, when that started? Right, about 15. Right. And that was like 1978 when you formed? Uh, yeah, right around that Something time. Something like that, yeah. And you and Tom Gaddis were, knew each other in high school? Is that... No, no? actually. Um, he had an ad in the local, I mean, very local newspaper... It just said rock guitarist. I mean, it was the lamest ad ever. <laughs> yeah. It just said rock guitarist. So, uh, and I called it, called him up, and he came to my house. But we didn't go to the same school. I don't know what school he went to, but um, we, we didn't go to school together at all. I, I, yeah, I, I think I read that on the Internet. But, yeah, don't trust everything you read on the Internet, yeah. right? <laughs> For sure. So you, did, you went to high school in Baltimore, is that correct? In the Baltimore area, right between Baltimore and Washington, a town called Laurel. Okay. So when Deuce, when you guys uh, were going, you were sort of part of the Washington, D.C. music scene then? Is that... Definitely. We yeah. were like the only, the only band that was heavy. Heavy, and, yeah. Did you cross paths ever with some of the punk bands that were happening at the same time, like Bad Brains and Minor Threat and stuff like that? I think that might have been a little bit after our, our time or maybe around the same time i think tom knew more about that stuff than i did we were both huge uh ramones and sex pistols fans but uh i think he was a little bit more knowledgeable than i was right i guess the biggest 
sort of hard rock band out of D.C. was Angel, huh? We were definitely fans of them. And uh, actually, when I left Deuce, the guitarist who replaced me was Punky Meadows' brother. Yeah, right. I read that. Yeah. It's a pretty small world over there. Um, but uh, I, I was a big, big fan of Angel back then, and all, all of Deuce was. So Deuce, you, you played all those shows at the, at the barn. That was like your rehearsal, your rehearsal space? Yeah. And I, I read a thing where you talked about how basically you just turned your rehearsals into shows and it was just kind of like a party atmosphere? Or? Yeah, it was never really a rehearsal because there was yeah. too many people there. So we wound up being shows and, and the, the songs were literally written as they were being performed live at the same time. It was the weirdest situation, but it was so cool. We, we, we all loved it. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, there's that compilation that came out in 97. I think it's on OPM Records. You, right. And so when was that stuff recorded? That was uh, the first Deuce demo. That was the first time that I or anyone in the band had ever been into a professional recording studio. We just went straight up to, like, the big-time studio. I mean, there was no, like, little A-tracks or or small-time studios. We went to the, a studio that people were making major albums. I mean, I think Linda Ronstadt was there and Kiss had done some stuff there. And it was a real studio. So we were just all really stoked to go there. I think it was around 78 or 9 or something like that. And, um, yeah, that's that's the demo. that We did it in two days. And, and uh, it, you know, it it's still one of my favorite pieces of music. I've done a billion albums since then and and uh i really really dig that demo i'm glad that somebody bootlegged it and put it out yeah so that's a bootleg that's there's nothing official about that release well it's a, it's official in the way that tommy and i said it's okay to release it okay okay yeah it's not uh, against our wishes or anything but um, right Yeah, that stuff is really impressive, especially for the time period. It's really, it really sounds like the new wave of British heavy metal, pretty much. It was um, actually before that. I, mean, I know, either, yeah. 
Tommy really got into that new wave of British heavy metal, as it did I, but he did even more so. But this was after I left the band. So at that time, we were pretty much, all we really listened to was Kiss, Angel, Riot, Yesterday and Today, Mahogany Rush, and the Scorpions. Yep. That, that's pretty much it. Wow, yeah, I was going to mention Riot because I was trying to think of any other American bands from that time that sounded like that, and Riot were about the only one I could think of that were really yep. similar to what you guys were doing. True, we 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 are into that. So I could definitely see where you guys were coming from then. So you, it was like a conscious effort to just be heavier. How did you arrive at that sound? Was it just from jamming and... That was just our sound. I mean, we were like young and we didn't have uh, really local role models because uh, everybody hated us because we were on the punk side of things. And at that time, punk wasn't... Uh, thing like it is now i mean punks were literally the outcasts so we were we were like young and had a lot of energy and playing fast and playing heavy and and uh but we had a relative uh our unique kind of uh abilities i mean we didn't suck you know like a lot of a lot of like punk bands have great attitude but didn't have really much playing to back it up but we actually had some musical ability and uh, this perplexed a lot of the more popular and, and uh, older bands that were like playing Fleetwood Mac covers and stuff like that. We, we were just, we didn't have a lot of friends and we, um, but we did have a lot of fans. Um, but I forgot what the question was. Oh, well, it's just, how did, how did you, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing that pretty much at the same time that similar kind of stuff was developing like over in the UK, what would become the new wave of British heavy metal? You guys were doing the same thing, kind of oh, independent of that. I see. I think it. I think uh, what the answer you're looking for is probably a lot of other people has a similar feeling. Is like we just want to be heavier than everything else. We want to blow everything else away. We want to be more insane than the next guy. And at that time, I think the heaviest thing out there was Black Sabbath. Yeah. And so we, we weren't really as doomy as that but we definitely wanted to be heavier than that we wanted to be more intense than what people thought was intense back then and i don't i i guess it was i don't led zeppelin and aerosmith and we didn't really care for that too much because it was too relaxed we just wanted <laughs> to be more intense than everything else and just be really super exciting so i think that's probably uh something that a lot of those young new wave of british heavy metal bands shared that kind of spirit that like was just like everything else is, is too mellow and too hippied out we just want to blow it away i mean it's kind of a childish mentality but that's probably how that sound was born
so you're you're making this kind of music in 1978. Um, was the term heavy metal even being used yet? Like, did you even think of yourselves as heavy metal, or was that not even really the the term yet? That's a good question. I think at that time it was a term, but it meant stuff like bikers and and uh, I it, it it was more like a I guess like Steppenwolf and Blue Oyster Cult and okay yeah and, and uh, stuff that you assume bikers would be into and it was not really something we thought of i guess that's a great question i don't know i think we just thought we were a, a really intense rock and roll band yeah it's just yeah i've tried to figure out when exactly heavy metal came into you know common use and when and what you know it, it's all so convoluted and confused now the you know <laughs> what does heavy metal even mean anymore but um yeah, but, it was right on the right on the turning point. Kind yeah. of. It definitely wouldn't have been a hip thing to say metal. Yeah, but looking back on it, definitely what you guys were doing was heavy metal, as what it came to be known as. No doubt, no yeah. doubt about that. I mean, if you listen to Kiss Alive, if you could, there could be a few riffs on there that could be certainly considered heavy metal, um, and uh, we were probably taking those heavy riffs and developing on those really. So we were heavy metal, but. Uh, that term probably hadn't come into fashion at the time. Right. So then, uh, what year was it that you had to move to Hawaii and, and leave the band? That was like uh, 81, I believe. So were you? did you play on the single, the I'm Saved single? No, that's, no. that's Timmy Meadows. Okay. So, so if you have that bootleg, then there's the two songs from the single right. that happened right after I left the band. That, that's the only thing different. Okay, yeah, so that must have been right after you left, huh? Yeah. And so then you get to Hawaii. I read that your dad got transferred to Hawaii. Was he in the yes. military or? Uh, he was in the government. So okay. We moved, yeah. And so how old were you? So you were like still like, like 19 18, or? Yeah. 18, I think uh, 18 when we moved to Hawaii. And then basically right away you form a band there? Yeah, I formed a band. It was extremely difficult to because at that time, you know, uh, I was like in, I had left Deuce even actually before I knew I was going to go to Hawaii. Oh, okay. The, the, the story gets really convoluted, so I'll leave that out. But I was, that was probably like my biggest development as a musician. So I was like trying to take this intense metal thing even further and further. And then all of a sudden I'm in Hawaii and Hawaii's like 10 years time warp from anything else. So I was uh-huh. like screwed. I couldn't find anybody to jam with. And everybody was in a stupor over there. So I finally found a drummer who was, uh, we could uh, get some cool stuff together and we formed a band. But it was just so many compromises and so many things that we just had to overcome. Is that Jeff Graves, the drummer? That's right, Jeff, yeah. Yeah, he's a monster drummer. He's, yeah, he, he's, he was a monster. Yeah. So he, and he we, was on everything all the way through the last Hawaii album, huh? Right. Well, I met him first over there, and he really hadn't developed much of it. He was just the only drummer I knew, and then I played him a bunch of new wave of British heavy metal stuff, yeah, like Raven, and uh, he immediately took to that, and that made me very happy. And uh, it was really just the two of us. We developed musically together. It was just the two of us jamming every single day in this little uh, rehearsal space, and by doing that, we really developed. That's probably where I made the biggest leap musically as a, as a player. 
and um, and so that's why Jeff and I we grew a lot together, and uh, that's how Hawaii kind of and all those Hawaii projects were basically vehicles for Jeff and me to uh, continue playing. Okay, so what came first, Aloha or Vixen? Vixen came first, and uh, um, that was uh, Jeff and I found a singer named Kim, and we had uh, made a demo, and um, and it started to get a little bit of popularity. Uh, I, I was suggested to send it to people in Europe who are trading tapes and stuff, and you got to, you know, in the underground, it got really kind of popular. But that really doesn't mean you get dime one from music, but no. it, it, gives yeah. you, it gives you a little bit of, a, you know, incentive to keep going and, and a little bit of notoriety, I guess. And so in 1982, you managed to get an Aloha song on Metal Massacre 2 on Metal Blade and a Vixen song on U.S. Metal 2 on Shrapnel. Yeah, how, how did you make that happen? Uh, I was teaching guitar, and a student told me about Mike Varney, who was uh, you know, looking for guitar players to make these albums. And I had no idea who he was. I didn't read guitar player. I didn't know anything about that kind of stuff. So uh, I sent him the demo and he said this is great if you did a song from this demo but put more guitar into it we'll put it on the album so angels from the dust was on the demo but it was pretty much a straight ahead it was actually a do song it was a straight ahead rock and roll song right but i just uh i just like put a whole bunch of ape shit guitar in it and, <laughs> and that's exactly what varney wanted I me mean, I, that was the first record that i'd ever been on in any way so like the opportunity to do it, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. So I just uh, overplayed and played a lot of uh, guitar on it, and, and that's how it came out. And then you, and then you uh, also got in touch with Brian Slagle somehow, right? Or yeah, I don't remember how that happened. Um, I think uh, 
Vixen, that was after Vixen. Vixen had already released an EP by that time. Yeah, made in Hawaii. Made in Hawaii. So that we were still Vixen, and we'd done some shows in Hawaii and got some underground notoriety and did a ton of demos. Actually, we did a real lot of demos, and actually, demos are what were floating around in the underground more than the actually released stuff. Um, but we did uh, we did an EP and. Um, and I just came to the realization that I couldn't hang with the singer anymore because she wasn't as uh, metal as I wanted her to be. Okay. I mean, I, I loved her, but she, she just uh, she just wasn't the rad. I mean, she had her own style, and she definitely had her own fans, and she was fantastic. But uh, uh, I just uh, Jeff and I were like getting into this intense metal thing, and and uh, she was she's kind of really into this melodic journey Dio kind of thing, and lover boy or whatever and it just wasn't our speed and so we we decided to look for another singer and that's how aloha came into business okay and and you did a you did a demo with aloha at least one demo right yeah that was like really heavy at the time i don't know if you've heard the demo yeah i have heard it yeah there's three songs on it and um um secrets of the stars is that the song yeah that's it in the pit and the pendulum and yeah that the singer well she was just too good for us really she was like this fantastic gospel type singer and she was this total religious nut but she was like (laughs) kind of too dense to realize that uh heavy metal virgin (laughs) totally like practically satanic and all this brutal (laughs) lyrics and she was just oh yeah this is great this is fantastic (laughs) we're like as as long as you can hang with it great because she she did all that stuff in like one take and and she was just like too, really too good for us, and out of our league completely. And uh, soon enough, she wised up, and and uh, she she left us. But it, it the demo got us like so much good good feedback on the underground, and it was just such a weird collaboration. I mean, Jeff and I were doing this stuff that really no one was really doing. I, I'm sure like Slayer and Metallica in their early early stages were doing stuff that was similar. Um, but it certainly wasn't stuff that you could find in the mainstream and get influenced by. So we were doing it our own way completely. And then on top of that was this like Tina Turner sounding amazing vocalist. <laughs> yeah. And with those, those totally early eighties metal lyrics, I mean, it was really a, it was a one of a kind thing. And I, I think heavy metal version was like the lamest song off the demo, but for whatever reason that, I think we didn't want to give away our our good song for whatever reason. We're just like, let's just give the weakest song to the compilation album. Yeah, yeah. I really don't remember the the details of it, but uh, that's all we did, actually. I mean, she left the band, and that was the end of it.
And then was Gar- Gary St. Pierre, I'm guessing, probably wasn't from Hawaii, was he? He lived there. Oh, okay. I think probably from somewhere else. And um, he was in a cover band. And uh, again, we were looking for singers. And Hawaii is like, there's no one. There's, there's no one there. Yeah. Jeff and I, again, were looking for singers. And of course, we couldn't even find a bass player. So it, it was really super tough. And we found Gary. He was singing in a cover band. At least he had a really strong voice. Um, but he wasn't really our ideal singer, but he was the best that was there, and um, that's how we came along with him. And he played bass too, right? Nah, that was a fake out, man. Oh, that was a fake out? <laughs> yeah. We didn't have no bass player. We oh, played you played bass, bass probably, huh? I played bass on the recordings. Right. And we, we played shows without a bass player. We just turned, turned up loud, as loud really? as we okay. Yeah, and... Um, we had a, actually had a bass player in Vixen. In the Vixen days, we had a really good bass player, um, but that didn't last. And in Hawaii, um, in the early days of Hawaii, like when we released One Nation Underground, we did not have a bass player. Um, eventually, we got one, but like on that first album, we didn't have a bass player. So it was just him in the photo. Okay, okay. Mm. Yeah, so One Nation Underground was, um, you must have gotten a lot of good feedback about that, right? It's kind of a legendary like early thrash album at this yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, it, we got good feedback from it, and of course we got really bad feedback from it. Yeah. I remember one review in Kerrang, they said, this record sounds like it was recorded on cardboard. <laughs> that's, that's the whole review, and they're like reviewing like half page for everybody else. They, one sentence is, is all they wrote. <laughs> but at the same time, oddly enough, Billboard magazine in America gave it a fantastic review, they were, it was like listed right along with all the other albums that were hits at the time. And these guys are like super hot. This is like, this is the next big thing and just great stuff. I couldn't believe they're writing about writing that type of, they probably didn't even listen to the record. You know, they probably heard like 20 seconds of it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. You know, they, they wrote some great things and in the underground, you know, it was, it was really good. It were, there was like mixed reviews on the vocals and the, recording it cost eight hundred dollars to do so it didn't sound very good but you know it it definitely um it was like the sixth album that was ever released on shrapnel records and i think it was the first album to mix like really super intense guitar you know at that point really futuristic guitar with a metal you know at that at that point i I, you know i think it was rather groundbreaking uh, and um but uh, there were millions and millions of weaknesses on the record. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't a great thing. But um, for whatever reason, it, it was groundbreaking and probably influential to some warped individuals out there. <laughs> yeah, I think it definitely is considered groundbreaking. It definitely does have issues. Did you guys produce it yourselves? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if there was even a... We just wanted to get it done, really. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of producer decisions going on. Um, we just recorded the songs as we had them, and they're basically just guitar opuses with uh, yeah. <laughs> drums and vocals thrown in for good measure. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wish that Gary would have uh, approached it more the way he approached the Vicious Rumors record that he did. Um, I never heard, but it's probably better than what he did on Hawaii. Yeah, you haven't heard Soldiers of the Night? No. Yeah, I had- he does a lot less of the high, like almost falsetto vocals, you know. On the, on the Vicious Rumors album. Yeah, I think at the time, Jeff and I were just head over heels in love with Raven. 
I mean, we were just right. the Raven fanboys, so we probably told Gary, dude, sing like this. And that was as close as he got. And he was a really good singer, so uh, he probably just wanted to, uh, you know, do what we wanted him to do. And, and um, you know, it is what it is, you know. Okay, so you guys wanted him to sing like Raven, and that's how he... That's probably, <laughs> that's probably what it was. Yeah, it was probably something along those lines or just like just more intense than everybody else because Jeff and I were just like off the wall just trying to like if somebody was playing some riffs, we wanted to play cooler riffs than those guys. You know, we're really <laughs> kind of competitive. It's really very childish again, but um, that's how we developed a lot of the things that were unorthodox by just like disliking anything that wasn't intense. How did yeah. you end up with Eddie Day then? Eddie Day was a singer in Deuce for the longest period of time. I was in Deuce for maybe two, three years, and he was the singer for most of that. And um, Eddie was like a mediocre singer at best when he was in Deuce. And um, we kicked him out just before we made the demo that you heard. And that put a spark under his ass to get good. And as soon as he was kicked out of the band, he started singing in all these other bands around D.C. area, and he got super good. I mean, he got really, really good, and I always knew that in the back of my mind that, you know, now he's good. So when I was in Hawaii, I'm like, dude, we're about to make an EP. Um, you want to come down and join our band? We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And he did. Of course, we, we had no hard feelings, and we, actually, we're still good friends till today. Wow, so AI, I knew that I had read that he was induced, but I also knew that wasn't him on those songs, so that's, that's great to find that out. Yeah, yeah, I love his vocals. Um, he's great. Yeah, I think, I think uh, Loud, Wild, and Heavy is, it's one of my favorite uh, 80s metal releases, period.
Thanks, man. I, just I, I, never, I rarely talk about this stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I figured. I, I did. I, I, I watched you on Artie Lang's show, and, and you said something about how you would hate it if you, your favorite thing you ever did was something in the past. <laughs> and then I was thinking, well, I just wanted to talk to him all about the past, so I hope he didn't mind. But uh, <laughs> Well, no, you know, I, I think uh, I noticed that the, for, for whatever reason, you're really into the minutiae of that kind of stuff. And, and uh, I figured that, the, that that's a nice enough gesture that I might as well come out and talk to you about it. Well, yeah, I really appreciate it. I, I really wanted to talk to you about the song Escape the Night because I think it's so, it's so interesting that you recorded it with like every band. Or you recorded it with Vixen, and then you, it's on One Nation Underground. But then you, did you just think that you hadn't quite gotten it yet, and that's why you did it with Unlaw Wild and Heavy, too? I've done that about a billion times in my career. Yeah. Um, and I'm still friggin' doing it, man. If I feel that something has not been heard by the right people, I, I will do it properly again. Yeah. I mean, and uh, at that, that song was... Uh, written right after I left Deuce. I still lived in Maryland way before I moved to Hawaii. And I actually did a demo of that that nobody's ever heard. Um, Really? Yeah, and I just think it it was a good song. I thought it was a good song, but at the time, up until Loud, Wild, and Heavy, I never recorded it in a good enough production environment to make it sound decent. Where it came out on Loud and Wild and Heavy, at least we were in a good studio course there was no budget and everything was one take and there was no time but at least you know it was properly recorded so you can hear it and it, it sounds pretty good and and um it is uh i always thought it was a really good song and it was never never got heard by anybody and it was out of place on one nation underground i mean it should have been replaced by a more aggressive song mm-hmm. and um but I just thought a good song was a good song, and it didn't really matter about the context of the record. And, but, uh, yeah, th- I've done that a lot. I mean, I've done on, on the, the album Scenes, I did a song called Triumph, and that's Thunder March from my Dragon's Kiss record. And, and even still, that song is not done as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. I mean, it came out on my European live album, but it's just a live version. So I've even done demos of it with, like, a full orchestra. And... Um, it's just not done yet. (laughs) So, um, it's just one of those things, you know, and, uh, I think a good song, it deserves to be interpreted properly. And sometimes, uh, it doesn't, doesn't happen the first go round. Yeah. Well, I would rank escape the night from loud, wild and heavy as just about my favorite heavy metal song, period. I I don't think there's a song I like more than that, (laughs) you know, and and it fascinates, you know, yeah, like you said, a good song is a good song, but it fascinates me that the production and the vocals can actually... I mean, the song... The, I don't know if the song would have stood out as much for me in the Vixen version or the One Nation Underground version. Right. And to think that, you know, if you hadn't redone it on Loud, Wild, and Heavy, then there's that... You know, the song is there, but it's just... I love it so much on Loud, Wild, and Heavy, and Eddie Day, I think, just really nails the melody, too. Even if it seems just 
you make a very good point that happens a lot with indie bands. Um, you might have something good, but if you can't hear it or if it's not played properly or sung properly or the sound is bad, it, it totally um, makes it unlistenable, really. And um, sometimes it's all in the interpretation and production of things that makes a big difference, you know. And uh, Gary isn't the right singer for that song. Kim probably could have done a better ver ver vocal of it. Actually, on the Vixen version, there's some awesome bass playing on that song. I, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. The arrangement was it was kind of messed up. and um, But uh, the Hawaii version, at least, you know, it was recorded properly. So it got from the studio to the person's ear. So you, you make a very good point there. And then I wonder, you know, what other songs are there out there that just weren't done right and could have been much better, you know? Well, I mean, sometimes bands release bonus tracks with their demos and stuff so that's where you can really hear a lot of that going on yeah and so loud wild and heavy is on what cavern productions is that what kind of label is that we had a ma a manager you know this is all typical teenager indies band stuff we had a manager who you know he didn't really know about music but he wanted to be in the music business so he like was funding the band and paying for studio time and paying for guitars and just kind of a sugar daddy for a band. And if you've been in a band, you probably have seen this situation at one time in your career. And uh, it's really hard to turn down some guy who's buying you like expensive guitars and stuff. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a good situation, but uh, when you're absolutely homeless and it's happening, this is what you fall into. And, um, you know, his heart was in the right place, but we're in Hawaii, which is literally just a speck of dust in the ocean. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, to get what we did get done is a, is a big feat in itself. But to, he, uh, you know, financed the record and he had a record store in Hawaii and um, he had a lot of good advice and, and he fed us a lot. And um, he, he was a good guy. Um, didn't have experience in the music business and didn't really have connections to get us to point B, which, you know, we could have we could have been a contender, so to speak, with other bands at that time had we been not in Hawaii. Um, because I thought that we are a relatively good band that could fit right in that uh, uh, second new wave of British heavy metal. We, we were definitely good enough, but... Uh, our manager didn't have the connections, and we were far away, so that's, that's my excuse. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Loud, Wild, and Heavy is just as good or better, you know, than everything else that was similar at the same time. But, you know, what kind of a distribution did you even have on it? Well, we had a decent distribution. Uh, the distribution company was the same guys who were distributing everything in that genre, so we, we can't blame them, and it actually for what it's worth, sold as well as we could, could be expected. But the problem was it wasn't a real record label and there was no real promotion to speak of. So th that's right. what happened. It's just your typical yeah. ball-dropping situation. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, then you make the full-length album, Natives Are Restless, and that wasn't even released in the United States, right? Uh, good question. Um, probably not. We just... Uh, uh, that yeah, um, it was. I think it was on a. There were there's two different covers. One on a German label, Steam Hammer, and then there's a French label, Axe Killer. Oh, uh, there's um, there's so much convoluted stuff that I don't even remember that I've 
pretty much uh, deleted my memory banks on all of those things. Um, yeah. The only official thing that was was the cover with the chick on the front. Actually, there's three covers of that record. The only one that I'd ever seen at the time was the one with the girl holding my guitar. I think that must be the French one. I have the German one. It's a very strange cover. Faces on... Yeah, that's. Uh, I have no idea who made it or who said it was okay to release. <laughs> wow. So the only one... No idea. The only one that's real is the one... I think it's vinyl or... I don't know. I've signed bootlegs of it on a CD. It's this chick in the middle of the ocean holding my guitar. Mm-hmm. And a rainbow happens to be coming out of the guitar. Um uh, it's it, you know the chick is super hot so I'll, I'll excuse the lameness of the cover <laughs> but uh but uh yeah that's the only thing that was real and uh i think that it was funded by a record store in hawaii a different record store in hawaii and um i don't really know much about the details of it and it was illegally licensed on cd and nobody in the band has ever seen a cent from any of it wow so, um, yeah, that's what, what that is. But that was the only thing that got us popular in Hawaii. So the Loud, Wild, and Heavy and One Nation Underground was just way too over the top in <laughs> yeah. Hawaii. We couldn't, we could barely gig. You know, it was in Hawaii, you have to understand, nobody liked metal at the time. And even in the mainland, metal was just very, very brand new. I mean, people thought, I don't even know if Rat was a band back then, but if they were, people thought that was super heavy. And what we were doing was, like, up there with Raven and Slayer and Metallica. And so, like, it was just way too abrasive for the mainland, so forget about it in Hawaii. So we all lived in Hawaii, so we wanted to make a relatively commercial album so we could work down there and get some get somewhere and at least, like, be a band because we were just fanning our balls down there. <laughs> We we got like fan mail and stuff from like other countries, but that didn't mean anything as far as working. So we we did the natives are restless, which was totally commercial, yeah, by our standards. And lo and behold, all of a sudden we're all over the radio in Hawaii. We're doing big long running gigs in big venues in Hawaii, and people are showing up, and we've got fans, and we're doing interviews and radio and. We're doing about as much as we could possibly do as an in, as an original band in Hawaii. We opened up for Deep Purple at a big arena, did lots of big gigs. We made a little money, and and you know it's funny how those things work. I mean, we didn't really want to go that route because we were like meddlers, but uh, that record was the only slight hint of success that we had where we were living.
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And did you ever come over and tour at all in the mainland? Yeah, that was the end of the band, really. We came, uh, we came to California. We had like seven gigs lined up. We showed up to L.A. The guy who booked the gigs told us they're all canceled, every one of them. <laughs> no. And so like, there's like seven of us in this one tiny hotel room on Sunset that was just a complete dive. And um, our gigs are canceled. So, wow, what do we do? So um, so I had a friend, he hustled to get us on one gig in, in L.A., which we did. And then um, after that gig, we didn't even have a ride to San Francisco to the next gig that we had. And um, so we were in the parking lot of the gig we did in L.A. asking people 
to drive a whole band and its gear up to the <laughs> to San Francisco. And lo and behold, we got a guy to do it. <laughs> and took all of our gear and the band members up to San Francisco. And that city had an underground metal station called KUSF that played metal and demos and heavy stuff. So we were actually semi-known within the underground people who listened to that station. And uh, like, I guess, fans of Exodus and Metallica and at that time, Legacy, who turned into Testament, where they were a big Bay Area band. So they were on the bill with us. And we got up to up to San Francisco and did this gig, and it was just killer. I mean, it was the best gig that Hawaii ever did. I mean, we didn't even play the Natives of Restless material hardly at all. It was mostly like the our heavier material. And uh, the audience was really, it was the up-and-coming metal, metal people in the Bay Area scene. And it was a really great gig. But unfortunately... That was no one had a place to go after that. I didn't even remember saying goodbye to anybody in the band. We all went our separate ways, and that's the last any of us saw of each other. I haven't seen Graves since then, or Gary St. Pierre, or uh, Tom Azevedo is in the band. Um, haven't seen any of those guys. Wow, crazy gig. We just we just split up and like poof. It was the weirdest thing. Just because there was no way to make a living from it or or keep no it going. No way to make a living and. Guys lived in Hawaii, and I lived in Hawaii, but I said, fuck it, I'm not going back to Hawaii. I'm not. Yeah. So after that gig, I just kept my gig, and uh, I kept my gear, and I, I moved in with, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time who lived up there, and um, thank God that she let me live up there, because otherwise I'd be sitting outside of that club that we just played with, like a Marshall stack and a guitar, <laughs> and no place to go. And, uh, and another side note is... Um, the person who drove me to uh, my girlfriend's house at the time was Gary St. Pierre. You know, yeah. he he took me from that gig with my gear um, all the way from Oakland to San Francisco, which is like 45 minute drive. You know, I had no one. I didn't know anybody in town. He was the only guy I really knew. Um, and um, we hadn't parted on the ap- absolute best terms in Hawaii either, you know, and uh, it was definitely probably my fault because uh, for whatever reason, I just thought he wasn't metal enough and, and I probably had bad-mouthed him or something and and not for his lack of trying his best and not for his lack of talent, not for his lack of dedication. I was just like an, probably an egotistical bastard at the time, so <laughs> he, I really didn't deserve for him to like do me any kind of favors. But he, he certainly did. He came to the show. He took me and my stuff all the way across town. And um, from that, I really learned to like how to be a, a better person. I mean, no, you know, jokes intended. I mean, because like a lot of like 19 year old guitarists, especially like hot shot type flashy guitarists can really, without even knowing it, be quite a prick, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's not really a good way to... Uh, conduct yourself and i learned it right then and there when like even though he had no reason to uh, help me out he totally did me a solid i'm like holy shit this 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 guy is way cooler than i am so i I learned from that so that 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 was the the official end of hawaii with with that lesson to be learned and i I have to thank uh thank gary st pierre for that that's a great story. Sad and uplifting at the Sad same time. Sad and uplifting. And, uh, it's a beautiful, heartwarming story. I have to tell. 
So did Gary, Gary St. Pierre came to that show, the Hawaii show? I'm not sure if he came to the show or if he came after the show with me calling him and asking him to, me to drive me to, to Frisco. Or I don't remember how that happened. I don't remember him actually being at the show, but it, it's possibly, possibly, I know he was there at the end of the show to take me and my <laughs> right. ear, but I don't know if he, he saw, the, saw the show or not. Yeah, Vicious Rumors were in San Francisco, I believe. Yeah, he might. I think he he lived there at the time, and maybe he was in Vicious Rumors at the time. I I, I don't know about that. Yeah, I think that album came out in '85. The album that he's on with them. Uh, maybe he wasn't. Yeah, right. Because this was probably what '84, or 80, uh, wow, three or four, something like that. Yeah. Then you're just living in San Francisco with your girlfriend. Yeah. That then then I'm like uh, again, like what do I do now? But at least I was in in a relatively real city. And so at that time, I just figured until I get into a band, I'm just going to write as much music as I possibly can. And um, I spent all the time writing. I mean, you can only look for a band for so much. I mean, it's San Francisco. It's really just a bunch of hippies, really. Mm-hmm. And, and and no, there wasn't really a whole lot of motivated musicians there. And at that time, still, heavy metal was like totally underground. And so uh, there was not a whole lot of people I wanted to jam with. So it was just basically me writing and recording everything in my apartment and for, for quite a while. And so did Mike Varney put you together with um, Jason Becker then? Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. We were, Varney and I were going to do a solo album. It was like 80% done, really. It was almost all done. And then he introduced me to Jason, and I thought, what do I need another guitar player for? <laughs> yeah, right. I've already got, like, five guitar players' worth of guitar stuff on this record. Why would I ever want to, you know, have another guy? And then I met Jason. I fell in love with him so much. I'm like, I don't care what it takes. you got to be on this record, and you got to, you know, you got to play this stuff with me live because you're the only guy who can do it first of all and the only guy who would want to do it and plus he was just such a cool cool dude to be with and and uh so refreshing i just bent over backwards to find a place for him on the first cacophony record and um and just to have him there so we could do stuff you know because i had written a lot of music for like two or three guitar parts playing at the same time and there wasn't really a lot of guys at that time who could do what I wanted to be done. And he was the first, you know, hope for me to do that. So I, I had to keep him around. And God, how old was he when, when he you were like first seven, 17? Right, right.
And so you do the two cacophony records, and then basically right after that, he gets the David Lee Roth gig, probably, right? Right. We were like, we had wonderful tours of Japan and America, and it just couldn't possibly be better. Um, but again, indies, you know, there's, there's no money. And, and at some point you have to like eat. So yeah. we both knew that although we loved the band, it was still really underground and we probably do better if we separated and started networking on our own. Cause we, you know, we were relatively known as guitar players, but doing it together like that was limiting our potential. So we, we amicably split. And um, we got gigs. He got his gig first, and I got mine, like, a, you know, maybe five, six months later. Was it like an audition process for you to get the Megadeth job? Just one audition, really. And were, there other, were there other guys auditioning, too, or did they have you in mind? Or No, they had already auditioned, like, 60 guys okay. before I got there. And uh, they didn't uh, have me in mind. We just uh, A mutual friend just told me that I should uh, give it a shot. Uh-huh. And you just did one audition, and then they picked you? Yeah. And what about, do you know how Jason got the David Lee Roth job? Was that, did he audition for that? Was that like a casting call, too, or? Uh, it was kind of, I think it was through Mike Varney. They were asking Varney about, uh, uh, asking Varney about guys, as every major band asked Varney for guys at the time. And right. he, I suppose, suggested Jason, who couldn't be more perfect for the gig. Yeah. And then he got sick, like, right away after he got that, didn't he, pretty much? Yeah, pretty much, um, before the recording of the album. Wow. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's, a, that's such a sad story. But uh, Yeah. So then after your time in Megadeth, what was it, 10 years? Yeah. Then that's when you moved to Japan and basically reinvent yourself, would you say? True, true, true. And yeah, I, I that was a uh, very interesting um, watching you on the Artie Lang show. Um, you know, you basically told the whole story on there. You talked on Artie Lang about how you love Japanese music so much. I was just wondering if you had a few bands that you would recommend, or it all depends. I mean, in Japanese music, there's so much of a wide spectrum of cool, interesting, futuristic stuff going on that you it just pick a pick a style you know what i mean a lot of people who followed my career are going to like metal more than pop so if you if you like metal i mean i can't imagine a metal person who hears something like maximum the hormone and doesn't get into that i mean they're fantastic it's like one of my all-time favorite metal bands of anywhere and they're from japan so what era are they from are they recent? right now right, right now. now okay their most latest album is just absolutely sick so for metal fans, I would say go directly to Maximum the Hormone. Um, some of, there were some episodes of Rock Fujiyama. Is that how you yeah. there were There used to be some episodes of that on YouTube. Of course, they're, uh, most of them were in Japanese, so I couldn't really get much sure. out of it. But I, I remember really enjoying You had Andrew W.K. on, and there oh, was right. one where you and Paul Gilbert did like a guitar war sure. or something. <laughs> Those are really fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. But um, in 2010, you did that song with Andrew W.K. Yes, Kiba. Yeah. yeah, that's a great song. How did is Thanks. he is he really popular in Japan? Yeah, he definitely has his fans over here, and uh, I'm one of his biggest fans. So yeah, I love him. Yeah, he's fantastic, and uh, I wanted to uh, work with him. And I he came on that Rock Fujiyama program, but I had another program 
um, during that time called Transporter, which I had him come on there. And um, we did some crazy stuff on that show. And we just got all hyped up in it, like, dude, we got to make a song together, dude. And usually that's where that story ends, but we decided to really make it happen. And then we got uh, a big tie-up with the biggest pachinko machine maker in Japan, and it became kind of a big thing. And we wrote that song, Kiba, and uh, recorded it, and he did it in English and Japanese, and it was just a fantastic uh, experience. And every time he comes here, I jam with him on stage, and and uh, he's just a, a great, uh, unique individual. Yeah, yeah. I've seen him live a few times. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of his. He's Yeah, he's great. I usually will put a song at the end of the episode. Is there anything that you'd like me to, anything specific you'd like me to play? Something new. I mean, something from like a Tokyo Jukebox. Or, or uh, you know what? Um, there's, a new, there's a song off my new album. Inferno. Yeah, you talked about it on Artie Lang. Yeah, that song Steroid Head is, uh, is up on the, on the net for streaming. So that'd be perfect. All right. Steroid Head. Okay, I'll, so I'll put that at the end of the show. Mm. Cool, And man. that's going to come out in May? Your new album? That's right. Okay. Well, thanks so much. This has been My great. Pleasure. I've always wanted to know about Deuce, and, and <laughs> to, to be able to talk to you about Escape the Night was just great. So, uh, Man, I appreciate it. Hey, have you heard of that movie, uh, um, Tension 25 Years Underground? Yeah, I have heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, that, would, that might, uh, uh, you know, you, you might be interested in that. Because well, yeah, that. that was Deuce, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like... It's a very homegrown type of video, but if if you could get your hands on that, you'll that's that's the real whole whole story. I saw like the preview on YouTube, but I haven't yeah. actually seen the movie. Yeah, if it's a DVD, I would definitely. Uh, I think it is. So I'd recommend recommend that. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to get that. I mean, you have to take it with the. It's total like local homegrown looking type of dvd but like the guy who put it together his heart was totally in the right place and he was around at the time so if if you're interested in that era whatsoever that that'd be perfect yeah very okay great well thanks a lot thanks for um devoting your time to this i really appreciate it 
Absolutely my pleasure, and do stay in touch, man. All right, great. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, so there you have it. That's my interview with Marty Freeman. I hope you enjoyed it. I really loved getting a chance to ask him about Hawaii and hear, to hear the great story of Hawaii. What a, It was just a great story that he told, so I hope you enjoyed it. Marty has a new album coming out in May of 2014 called Inferno. So, to play us out... What does that mean, to play us out? I don't know what that means, to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. I'm going to leave you with the song you heard Marty suggest from his new album. Like I said, Inferno comes out in May. This is Marty Friedman, Steroid Head. Until next time.